title of your talk is Anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and the Contours of International Human Rights Law. I'll be very quick. She wants to do a quick introduction. I will have a pleasure. Susan is a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute in New York, where she directs projects on, and I quote, dangerous speech on the road to mass violence, which is funded by the McCarthy, McCarthy Foundation, the Institute, sorry, the U.S. Institute of Peace, and the Fetzer Institute. She's also working um, as an Everett Fellow in, in Genocide Prevention at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. In addition to these very serious uh, positions and work, she has taught and lectured at places such as Yale, Duke University, John Hopkins, the University of Virginia, the University of Texas, Humboldt University of Berlin, and the list goes on and on. She's well published, and I don't want to introduce too long, but really thank you for coming. So I'm very grateful for the invitation, and I'm going to make the most of it by seeking your help with some new ideas after briefly introducing the work on which I'm now building uh, with these ideas, which again are, are um, quite, uh, uh, quite new and, uh, and representative of a work in progress. So first to introduce very briefly my, my existing work and how it has given rise to today's topic. For five years or so, inflammatory speech has been my principal research interest. I began this work because of one key insight, that inflammatory speech precedes outbreaks of collective violence, including genocide and ethnic cleansing, especially those episodes with high levels of civilian participation. After examining cases around the world and across historical periods, I developed this idea. That speech, such speech, this type of speech, is at least a precursor, if not also a prerequisite, for collective violence that targets specific ethnic, religious, or racial groups. I went on to theorize that there is a specific subset of inflammatory speech that plays a catalytic role mass violence because of the collective psychosocial process that it brings about. It prepares groups of people to condone or even take part in conduct that they would usually perceive as impermissible. This process has been described by other scholars, of course, such as the pioneering Helen Fine here at Harvard. I've since coined the term dangerous speech to describe incitement to collective violence that in the context in which it was made or disseminated, has a reasonable possibility of succeeding, by which I mean helping to bring about violence. I built an analytical framework to identify this subset of speech that I call dangerous speech, with a view to frustrating its purpose. I'm firmly attached to that imperative, in other words, to find ways of limiting the effectiveness of this dangerous speech, but I'm also equally attached to another one, which is to protect freedom of expression. I'm convinced that both are essential, since inhibiting freedom of expression may itself increase the chances of mass violence, and freedom of expression is, of course, indispensable for other reasons, which I am sure I don't have to review. I hope that this work that I've done so far is useful for the development of law and policy to prevent, or at least to limit, collective violence. However, it's applicable in situations that are, thank goodness, quite rare. In 
other words, countries that are suffering a considerable risk of mass violence. In the course of doing this work, I've begun to look beyond these terrible but special cases to other contexts and forms of speech that, contribute to, that can contribute to real damage, for example, to human life. Even as I've been building this taxonomy of dangerous speech in societies at risk of internal collective violence, in other words, it has become impossible to ignore inflammatory speech that falls outside of that ambit. That brings us to the topic of my talk today. How to understand, classify, and respond to some other forms of dangerous speech that are increasingly evident around the world. Specifically, I want to ask three questions, and I want your help with the answers during the Q&A. First, how can we understand or classify these forms of speech within the doctrinal contours of international human rights law? Second, what can this law do to mitigate the dangerousness of these forms of speech? And finally, are there other remedies that should also be considered? Now I'd like to just make uh, very quick remarks about the rise of inflammatory speech in general around the world. It is increasingly evident, as has been well documented and, and remarked upon in uh, uh, many documents and, 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 and talks. I want to talk about the reasons for it and mention at least three of those. First, thanks to new patterns of migration, culturally disparate groups are in close physical proximity and sometimes competing for resources. And communities that long experienced themselves as homogeneous, culturally homogeneous, are no longer so. That process has been happening to one degree or another, however, in one part of the world or another for centuries. A new phenomenon, by contrast, is that new media and social media have made it much easier for inflammatory speech to travel across boundaries between nations and also across boundaries between normative groups. This makes some forms of inflammatory speech much more dangerous. To take a familiar recent example, if an obscure pastor in Florida had burned a Quran 10 years ago, or at any time in history before that, no local mullahs in Afghanistan would have heard about it. A third reason why inflammatory speech has become more evident is that we now tend to hear the internal speech of other normative communities as never before in history. The speech that leaders use when they are addressing their own, their own tribesmen and women, their own soldiers, their own families, their own faithful. You know that this is an essential form of human experience since time immemorial. When we are together with our own, we talk in a different, special way. What's now happening, I'd like to, uh, uh, to convince you, or at least to suggest to you, is that we are more likely than ever to find out, for better or for worse, what leaders are saying to their own. For example, what clerics are saying to their own students and followers. This broadening of the audience, as I call it, can have a salubrious effect when it causes speakers to take more care with their internal language, with the way that they speak to their own, when they become aware that this, that this internal speech may, may reach other audiences. 
Or it can also make speech more dangerous because of the effect on the new audiences it reaches. Following that introduction, I want to make some very brief points on terms and also on theory. First, the term that you may have noticed is missing. I avoid the phrase hate speech, although it is widely used, of course, elsewhere. Why? It is inchoate, it is broad, there is no commonly accepted definition for it. There are instead many, both in law and in common parlance. And the word hate, in my view, is inapposite, since it isn't the speaker's state of mind that is a great, of, of primary interest. It is the effect of the speech on its audience, not the speaker, but the audience that, that uh, we should be most interested in. To focus attention there, I use instead the term inflammatory speech to refer to speech that excites fear or rage on the part of a group of people against members of another group, increasing the chance of violence. Now, two key analytical points on the functions of inflammatory speech. First, I'd like to suggest to you that there are two modalities or pathways by which inflammatory speech can travel. The first pathway is direct. This is when the speech is addressed to the people it purports to describe. I call you filthy Boston dwellers, for example. My inflammatory speech is direct. Alternatively, or in addition, since the same inflammatory speech can travel both pathways at the same time, inflammatory speech may function indirectly by encouraging one group of people to despise, discriminate against, or attack members of another group. That is incitement. It is this modality on which international human rights law chiefly focuses, for good reasons. But it may be that this does not capture many of the most worrisome or dangerous examples of international and transnational inflammatory speech. We will explore that by looking at a few examples together in a few minutes. The second analytical point I want to make is about the theory or purpose of law regulating inflammatory speech. As Robert Post has argued in a typically masterful essay on hate speech, in which he also takes issue with that term, although he uses it, there are essentially two bases for regulation of this kind of speech. One is a consensus within a normative community that a particular form of speech, for example, taking the Lord's name in vain, or saying the N-word, or depicting the Prophet Muhammad, is constitutively bad. The second basis is what Post calls consequentialist. If speech is likely to bring about a certain unacceptable outcome, then it is to be regulated, irrespective of its specific content. In the United States, for example, our constitution-driven regulation of speech is almost entirely consequentialist, as I'm sure you know. Post points out that this isn't surprising in a society with such a large array of disparate cultures or normative groups. He uses the city of Chicago to illustrate that one could not reach consensus for content-based restriction of inflammatory speech there, and that a judge attempting to decide a case on that basis in Chicago would have to privilege the norms of one community over another. Now I want 
to extrapolate this to the world and to international human rights law. If the 50 wards of Chicago cannot agree on constitutive norms for speech regulation, is it also true that the international community certainly cannot do so? In that case, must international human rights law's regulation of inflammatory speech be essentially consequentialist? I suspect that this is correct, but I'm eager to know what you think. Now finally, for the terms that are not missing in contrast to hate speech. The title of my talk begins with antisemitism and Islamophobia. Each of these labels is problematic in ways which have already been the subject of extended debate, scholarly and otherwise. I use them because they are the most familiar shorthands for certain collections or subgroups of speech that is common, sometimes dangerous, and often transnational. Antisemitism may refer to speech targeting Jews and or Judaism, Israeli policy, and or Holocaust denial. Islamophobia may refer to speech targeting Muslims, targeting Islam as a religion or as a state policy, in the form of Sharia law, for example, or speech targeting Islamic religious uh, figures or symbols. I hasten to say that by juxtaposing these terms, I do not equate them, nor am I interested in comparing them. Many differences between them have been recently explored and debated by others in detail. For example, during the controversy over remarks by Wolfgang Benz, director of the Center for Research on Antisemitism in Berlin in 2008. Similarly, in a few moments, I will give some examples of speech that are all arguably anti-Semitic or Islamophobic. Although, of course, there is debate about that as well. In using any examples, the debate can easily, or the discourse can easily go to moral equivalency or lack of equivalency. Please help me to resist that temptation, since it won't get us very far in exploring the capacity of human rights law to deal with inflammatory speech. With that said, just a bit more detail on why I am interested in this particular kitchen sinkful of speech. First, taken together, it is the subject of most of the international human rights cases on discrimination or inflammatory speech. Second, much of this speech, and of course I refer to both of these baskets now of speech, much of this speech <coughs> makes implicit reference to catastrophe in very different ways, but ways that give the speech more impact or force to borrow a useful term from the philosophy of language. In other words, anti-Semitic speech often evokes the Holocaust, giving it greater force and greater capacity to wound. Anti-Islamic speech often implicitly refers to September 11th and other acts of terrorism, implicitly tarring Muslims with a painful and sometimes dangerous brush. Third, these forms of speech are more likely than other forms of inflammatory speech to travel transnationally, which poses new and important challenges to the law, for example, to international human rights law. Why is this? First, Jews and Muslims live worldwide. Second, those who hate and fear them also live in many parts of the world, 
and are more internationally organized than ever before. Third, such speech is likely to be reported by members of the groups it targets, Jews and Muslims, sometimes for laudable purposes such as uh, research and documentation, and sometimes for indefensible ones, such as when what I call violence entrepreneurs use acts of speech like the burning of the Quran in Florida or the Innocence of Muslims video clip to incite violence thousands of miles away. In any case, since this speech is so often transnational, it must be understood and analyzed from the perspective of international law. Now I want to take you on a brief journey through the landscape of international law regarding inflammatory speech. It is varied, and in some cases rather undeveloped terrain. So you might imagine me, if you like J.R. Tolkien, as Frodo Baggins, attempting to navigate and make sense of a complex and sometimes unpredictable landscape, and sometimes dreaming of my familiar hearth at home, Bag End. That would be the First Amendment. First of all, not one, but two bodies of international law deal with inflammatory speech. International human rights law and international criminal law. Where they prohibit speech acts or direct states to do so, they focus principally on incitement. This must be said of both of these bodies of law. In the two bodies of law, five, no less than five, types of incitement appear. Incitement to hostility, incitement to discrimination, incitement to violence, incitement to genocide, and incitement to terrorism. All but the last one are codified. Incitement to terrorism has not, but it has been the subject of two Security Council resolutions in 2001 and 2005. It seems to me that the two bodies of law and the five forms of incitement should be interpreted coherently with one another. But scant attention has paid, been paid to this so far. Let's embark now on a, 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 what's going to be inevitably a bit of a, a rapid gallop uh, through some of the uh, provisions in international human rights law and uh, international criminal law. Of course, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is, uh, uh, contains the founding um, uh, language on so many human rights, including the right of um, freedom of expression, codified in Article 19, as not only the right to freedom of expression, but the right to freedom of opinion. It is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, another element of what is sometimes referred to as the International Bill of Rights, um, that uh, also uh, codifies freedom of expression in a way quite similar to, uh, to what you just saw from the UDHR. But in contrast to the UDHR, uh, the, uh, the covenant goes on to explain when the right of freedom of expression can be, uh, and even when it should be, must be, limited by states' parties. 
So you see that in Article 19.2, I'm so sorry, in Article 19, Paragraph 3, the ICCPR indicates that freedom of expression may be subject to certain restrictions, but um, any such restriction must, must pass a three-part test. Number one, it must be provided by law. Number two, it must be necessary and legitimate to protect the rights of others. And number three, it must be the least restrictive and proportionate means to achieve the purported aim. That, that third uh, uh, element of the test comes from case law, not uh, directly from the language of Article 19. Article 19 also gives us uh, specific bases um, on which the, uh, the necessity test may be met. The ICCPR goes on in Article 20 uh, to require that certain forms of speech be prohibited by state parties. In paragraph 1, any propaganda for war is uh, to be prohibited by law, and in Article 22, any advocacy of national, racial, or religious hatred that constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility, or violence shall be prohibited by law. This is the codification of three of the five forms of incitement that I mentioned to you. Discrimination, hostility, and violence. Uh, it has become clear that Article 19 and 20 must be interpreted, as you might imagine, in a way that is compatible, so that they are compatible uh, with one another. In fact, the Human Rights Committee, which is the treaty body um, uh, uh, charged with interpreting the ICCPR, um, uh, the Human Rights Committee has recently clarified in its new general comment 34 Article 19, the acts that are addressed in Article 20 are all subject to restriction pursuant to Article 19, Paragraph 3. As such, a limitation that is justified on the basis of Article 20 must also comply with Article 19, Paragraph 3. In other words, any restriction must, uh, any restriction under Article 20 must also comply with the three-part test that I described to you that it must be provided by law being necessary and legitimate to protect the rights of others and be the least restrictive and proportionate means to achieve the purported aim. The NGO named Article 19, that is uh, uh, the principal NGO defending freedom of expression on a worldwide level, has also proposed guidelines for determining the threshold implicit in Article 22. You can imagine that um, it would be difficult without some guidelines to determine where the line would be drawn between this, this vague and co category of hate speech and speech that constitutes indeed advocacy of national religious uh, or racial hatred, etc., etc. Article 19 has proposed a seven-part uh, test. One of the key elements is likelihood or probability of harm occurring. As Article 19 has said, while incitement by definition is an inchoate crime, and the action advocated through incitement does not have to be committed for the speech to amount to a crime, a high degree of risk of resulting harm must be identified. This is, of course, nothing other than a consequentialist test. 
uh, speech will, uh, uh, will be prohibited under Article 22 only if it constitutes advocacy, etc., etc., and there is a serious risk of discrimination, hostility, or violence resulting in part due to that speech. European Convention on Human Rights in Article 10 also uh, uh, largely echoes uh, the EDHR and the ICCPR. Um, I include it uh, um, in part because it is the European Court on human, of Human Rights that has produced a large body of the case law on inflammatory speech that we have in international human rights law. Um, and also because in Article 10.2, the European Convention gives a longer catalog um, of uh, uh, bases for restrictions on uh, the exercise of freedom of expression than the ICCPR. Maybe I haven't given you long enough to have a look at that catalog. And then finally, some of the European uh, courts' jurisprudence uh, on, uh, on inflammatory speech has relied on Article 17, under which, quite broadly, nothing in the Convention may be interpreted as implying for any state, group, or person any right to engage in any activity or perform any act aimed at the destruction of any of the rights or freedoms set forth herein or at their limitation to a greater extent than is provided for in the Convention. In other words, if your speech uh, impermissibly impinges on the rights of another person or people, it may be restricted under Article 17. Uh, this, is, um, this is the provision on freedom uh, of expression from the American Convention on human rights, another, uh, another uh, fundamental treaty in regional human rights law. And the American Convention similarly provides for limitations on the right. purposes, notably including paragraph 5, under which any propaganda for war and any advocacy of national, racial, or religious hatred that constitutes incitement to lawless violence, or any other similar action against any person, etc., etc., this language should by now be sounding somewhat familiar to you. I also want to, I'm, I'm going to uh, skip a few slides in the interest of time and getting as quickly as possible to the question and answer period. Uh, but I must point out to you also uh, um, an essential treaty from international criminal law, which is the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which codifies as one of the uh, punishable acts direct and public incitement to commit genocide. Uh, perhaps for those of you who are not familiar, I uh, 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 
will just fill you in on a bit more on the bodies that interpret and apply these laws. I've already mentioned the Human Rights Committee, which is a so-called treaty body um, um, required to interpret the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The European Court, of course, decides cases uh, brought by Europeans complaining uh, of uh, ostensible human rights violations against them by their own governments under the European Convention. Um, international criminal law has been applied uh, principally by UN ad hoc tribunals, for example, for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda. Uh, it is the Rwanda Tribunal that has produced more international criminal law regarding speech than any other body. And now the Permanent International Criminal Court, which has already signaled uh, its agreement, um, at least the, the prosecutor uh, has signaled his agreement with the Rwanda uh, Tribunal's emphasis on speech by indicting uh, and now, and now uh, prosecuting a Kenyan radio broadcaster as one of only four people the prosecutor seeks to hold responsible for uh, the disastrous post-election violence in Kenya in 2007-2008. So uh, with that, with that uh, rather rapid, uh, rapid gallop uh, through the terrain of international human rights law and international criminal law regarding speech, I'd like very, uh, very briefly to discuss with you three examples of inflammatory speech in light of this law and to pose some questions to you. And with that, I'll wrap up and, and invite your own questions. The first example of inflammatory speech that I'd, like to, um, that I'd like to raise with you is Holocaust denial, which, as you probably know, is criminalized in the national law of numerous European countries. There have also been several international cases. The Foisson case decided uh, uh, by the UN Human Rights Committee, um, and several cases decided by the European Court of Human Rights, such as the Garaudi case, in which the court found that Holocaust denial laws did not violate the European Convention using an Article 17 argument. Let me remind you of Article 17. This is the one that holds broadly that uh, uh, nothing in the Convention may be interpreted as permitting uh, a state group or a person to, uh, uh, to engage in acts aimed at the destruction of any of the rights guaranteed in the Convention. Uh, in, a, uh, um, in a report from the UN uh, High Commission on Human Rights, specifically on these laws, Holocaust denial laws, also sometimes known as memory laws, the OHCHR noted <clears throat> that the European Court, like constitutional courts in Belgium, Spain, and Germany, has taken the view that Holocaust denial is a form of indirect incitement to hatred. According to this interpretation, negationist discourses, as they're also sometimes called, are not so much untruths as discourses from which underlying incitement to hatred can be presumed. It is in this way that such statements can be recognized as offenses by law. However, 
More recently, the Human Rights Committee has concluded in its general comment 34, to which I already referred, that Holocaust denial laws are incompatible with the ICCPR. Is it true that memory laws are on the books in so many European countries, primarily because of what or whom they might incite? Or is it true, instead, that lawmaking elites in those countries have a consensus that such discourse is intolerable, if you like, inherently or constitutively intolerable, to them and especially to those who suffered in and because of the Holocaust? The second uh, uh, form of inflammatory speech that I'd like to discuss with you in light of international uh, human rights law is the video clip The Innocence of Muslims and with it the, uh, uh, the burning of the Quran by the, by the Florida pastor, Terry Jones. In the case of the video clip, as you probably know, there was no hatred directly expressed, no call to discriminate, and no advocacy of violence at all. Otherwise, strangely enough, the video clip arguably fits the two-pronged Brandenburg test, that is the, uh, uh, the principal uh, case on uh, our U.S. First Amendment standard for incitement. Brandenburg test holds that speech can be prohibited if it is, number one, directed at inciting or producing imminent lawless action, and number two, it is likely to incite or produce such action. The likelihood of violence in this case was very high, and surely it was foreseeable once the clip was translated into Arabic and posted on YouTube and publicized by the likes of Terry Jones. Of course, I must point out that the Brandenburg test also requires that, that such speech uh, in order to be prohibited in the United States, also must be advocacy of imminent lawless action. And as I pointed out, there is no such advocacy directly in that video clip, nor arguably did Terry Jones advocate any violence in burning the Quran. Instead, both of those speech acts, as they would be called uh, by philosophers of language, perhaps provoked violence or inspired violence, but did not in any way directly advocate it. It is true, of course, uh, that someone else, not the filmmaker and not his son, who, who uh, we read in the last few days, uh, actually posted the, uh, the clip translated into Arabic on YouTube. Uh, someone else had to carry the news of the video clip to the all-too-abundant audiences that could be easily provoked by it. In the case of this clip, the, the, um, uh, for example, it was publicized uh, over an Egyptian television station by an Egyptian cleric. This is a chain of causation. But the existence of the chain does not arguably excuse the first actors in it, of moral responsibility at least, where the consequences were highly foreseeable, as in this case. This was even more clear in Jones's case. This is Terry Jones, who burned the Quran, since he was explicitly and repeatedly warned of the violence that he was likely to provoke. Indeed, senior US officials called him when he first threatened to burn the Quran and begged him not to do so on that basis. 
However, again, in either case was there advocacy, as required either by our own Brandenburg standard or by Article 20 of the ICCPR, as you've seen. Note that under paragraph 3 of Article 19, such speech could be prohibited by law if it meets the three-part test that I, that I showed you. This is unlikely for reasons that we can discuss if you'd like. In the United States, incidentally, uh, we do allow a heckler's veto. It has, it has uh, uh, been argued uh, uh, in, uh, in abundant public discourse about the Innocence of Muslims video clip that it would be impermissible to attempt to regulate such speech because that would be um, allowing the, uh, uh, the mobs that reacted to it to determine or to, or to uh, dictate regulation. However, in the United States, we do allow such a heckler's veto. We're just very fortunate that it hardly ever arises, at least in constitutional cases. Indeed, Clarence Brandenburg, the Ku Klux Klan leader on whose case uh, uh, the famous, from whose case the famous standard emerged, Clarence Brandenburg's conviction would probably have been upheld by the Supreme Court if he had indeed had the capacity to bring about imminent lawless action. His conviction was overturned because he spoke to a tiny group of adherents uh, on a distant farm uh, in Ohio, if I'm not mistaken, on the outskirts of Cincinnati, and there was indeed uh, minimal danger, of, if any, of imminent lawless action. The final case I'd like to, final example of inflammatory speech I'd like to discuss with you is a, is a painfully uh, well-known one. Iran's president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, like many other leading Iranian public figures, has, at least since 2005, made dozens of statements in many venues within and outside Iran calling for the destruction of Israel calling for it to be wiped off the map, erased from the pages of time, etc., etc. And as I'm sure you know, a group of distinguished international lawyers and other notables has called more than once for his indictment on charges of incitement to genocide. I wonder, however, are the Iranian military, civilian, and religious leaders who have been speaking this way really calling for action on the part of their citizens, Hamas, or anyone else other than themselves. One of the most chilling examples among so many of Ahmadinejad's or the Iranian state's speech is, Israel must be uprooted and wiped off history. This, uh, this phrase was painted on the side of a Shahab III missile which was towed through Tehran during the military parade. But this was surely not calling for action on the part of the Iranian population. Was it not warning instead of possible action by the state? In that case, is Ahmadinejad not committing propaganda for war, which the ICCPR's Article 20, Paragraph 1, as you may remember, direct states to prohibit, 
but which is not the same thing as incitement. As Eugene Volokh wrote recently, Ahmadinejad's misdeeds have little to do with incitement as we normally understand it. Incitement is when a speaker encourages action by those with the power to act. In sum, I wonder whether international human rights law is uh, properly equipped to deal with the sorts of inflammatory speech that are most prevalent, most mobile, and most dangerous in the world today. In conclusion, I'd like to end with a set of questions as promised. Should international human rights law be developed to capture inflammatory speech more accurately? Should we draft, for example, a transnational version of the fighting words doctrine? I would argue with, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with US First Amendment doctrine, but we have an arguably moribund uh, doctrine called fighting words, quite different from incitement. The idea here is that there is certain language, or there was historically in the United States, certain language so provocative, so ugly, uh, uh, so offensive, that if one person said it to another, the first person was responsible for a violent reaction uh, uh, on the part of the hearer. The most famous case uh, on this doctrine is called Chaplinsky in New Hampshire. But over time, perhaps uh, uh, as our social norms have themselves evolved. The Supreme Court has considered case after case uh, that might have fit the, found the fighting words doctrine and determined that the language in question was not in fact in our social context provocative enough to be prohibited based on its capacity to provoke the listener to violence. That says much more about our social context, perhaps, than it does about the advisability or not of this type of a doctrine. In the international context, of course, there are indeed forms of language that are so um, inflammatory, so provocative, that, that it, it would be entirely foreseeable that they would produce um, a violent reaction and indeed lead to killings of people as we have already seen in case after case from Danish cartoons to Terry Jones to, uh, uh, to the innocence of Muslims. So I ask again, should we draft a transnational version of the fighting words doctrine? Another question, am I correct in arguing that international regulation must be entirely consequentialist? recall the analogy with the city of Chicago, borrowed from Robert Post? Or should exceptions be made in exceptional cases, such as, for example, Holocaust denial? Finally, a last question, should other remedies outside the law be considered? This is the view of Frank LaRue, the distinguished UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Expression, a Freedom of Opinion and Expression, who focused his latest report to the UN General Assembly on what he described as the growing number of expressions of hate, incitement to violence, discrimination, and hostility in the mass media and on the internet. And in light of that, 
He also focused his uh, report on how to interpret Article 20 of the ICCPR, with which you are uh, now at least somewhat familiar. What this, the Special Rapporteur wrote, while a legal pro prohibition and prosecution may be of key importance, in some cases, a more effective toolbox containing positive measures is also necessary. He recommended, in particular, education and awareness raising, counter-speech and social dialogue, data collection and research, media ethics, and self-regulation. In my current work, I am experimenting with some of those methods and would be delighted to discuss that if you find it of interest. Thank you very much. So, we can have Q&A. Can I just ask a point of clarification? Just before the section where you asked the question in the last few minutes of your talk, you mentioned something to the effect you're talking about the Iranian regime and capacity I raised a question about the capacity of the Iranian public to carry out genocide. Well, that's the thing. The state would have to incite itself. So, so what I'm asking is, is there not a difference between um, for example, my effort to convince this audience to do something, to try to get them to do something, and instead, language with which I might uh, uh, describe, predict, threaten, or in any other way refer to my own future action, or the action of other people different from the audience I'm addressing. Does that make sense? So, for example, it's, it seems that the that the that the uh, type of act um, um, to which uh, let's say the type of act that we fear on the part of Iran, the 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 the, the, the act that would be genocidal, um, would be carried out by the state, more specifically by the Iranian military by the Iranian leadership, not by the civilian population. In that case, it isn't clear that the, that the speech is functioning as incitement, but instead perhaps as something else like propaganda for war. This is not to say that the speech is justifiable, acceptable, anything other than appalling. What I'm saying is that it seems perhaps to fall into a, into a different category. So my question is that I'm not a legal scholar anymore. So, in our work, we, we focus on issues of state-sponsored anti-Semitism, state-sponsored genocidal anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. So from a legal perspective, how does it fit into all of these um, laws and conventions? Uh, how does what fit? You mean the spe so, these so speech the, acts of Ahmadinejad? Of the regime, of the ideology of the regime, yeah. of the social movement. Uh, is there are the, reper are the legal repercussions or the political repercussions greater than if an individual with power on the streets of Cairo says bad things and incites 20 people to do something? Well, uh, uh, Here we have a social movement which is sweeping the Middle East, which is inciting genocide. I would argue it's inciting genocide. What are the repercussions of that? The, 
speech act has uh, an enormous amount to do with who speaks and where the speaker has uh, some basis of authority or influence over the audience, the speech act will be much more powerful. For example, um, I often tell my students, I am someone who has no capacity to commit successful incitement to any form of violence. Thank goodness. Obviously, I wouldn't attempt it. But even if I did, I wouldn't succeed because I don't have that level of influence over any audience in the world, including my own students. It's also the case that my students are not primed to react uh, violently or even with hostility or discrimination. So the relationship between speaker and audience is enormously important in attempting to gauge the impact of insight. And if there's a strong correlation well, but we may be conflating two points. I was making a different one, which is to ask whether the speech to which we're referring actually constitutes incitement, whether it is intended to carry out uh, incitement. And uh, I uh, uh, tend to to, um, uh, to agree with Eugene Pollock, who says, Incitement is an effort to persuade people who have the capacity to carry out the act to which the insider refers. So I, I, mean, I, so I want to ask a question. I don't want to name, ask a question. When I was at Yale, we, we tried to organize a mock trial for Indeed. And I met with five prominent legal scholars, professors of law, and professor of law, and nothing about law. And I said, I want to do this mock trial. And they were offended. They were offended because American law supersedes international law accordingly. And incitement to genocide will only become incitement to genocide once the genocide occurs because of the First Amendment free speech. And then once the genocide occurs, then it's, a, it's, a, it's not a clear case, even if it was hypothetically genocide that resulted because of freedom of speech, it may be very important to them, difficult to. So it's, it's difficult to debate with people who aren't here, but I would have to disagree with a number of the points you made. One is that American law supersedes international law. Um, I'm not sure whether you're referring to Iran, to the world at large, to the United States, etc. So we can't say that, that, although I certainly have, have um, heard that from someone else, it isn't the case that United States law supersedes international law worldwide. Um, it's also not the case that incitement only becomes incitement once a genocide occurs. Incitement is what's called an inchoate crime in law, which means that it's considered complete whether or not it achieves its goal. It's like um, attempted murder is a crime whether or not the attempt is successful. So, and I know that Canada just successfully prosecuted something in Rwanda as the first case. Canada didn't actually prosecute him, but, but there was a case, uh, the case of Leon Mugacera, yes. And he was found guilty of genocide after the genocide. Quick question. If the United States, the government of the United States is having relations with governments, regimes, or social movements, political movements that are inside the genocide, is that, a, is that against international law or American law? Um, American law does not 
does not prohibit the government from engaging in foreign relations with other states. No, domestic domestic American law, uh, for the most part, doesn't regulate the government's conduct of foreign relations. There are some exceptions to that, the War Powers Act, etc. But um, that's a bit of a conflation of some of some different ideas. It's very hard to give a straight answer. I'm afraid I'm not. I'm not trying to duck the question. The Muslim Brotherhood incites the extermination of Jews openly, consistently. Consistent with ideology in in your place, United States government is having relations with the Muslim Brotherhood. And it's Congress that, that that makes our national laws. So I suppose you're asking whether Congress could pass a law forbidding the executive branch from engaging in foreign relations with another state. Is that is that right? I don't know. I'm just asking if it's legal if this is permitted. Is built around, in my opinion, around um, the difference between international and, and domestic law. Which trumps which? When it comes to trade and tariffs, we will find that international law will trump domestic law. But in this case, I don't understand if it does. So, does domestic law, American law, trump international law when it comes to incitement? Uh, First of all, domestic American law applies, uh, uh, generally speaking, um, in the United States, not in other countries. So, so domestic, for example, the First Amendment uh, uh, does not apply outside the United States. Other countries need not adhere to uh, the provisions of domestic American law. Uh, international law applies, uh, uh, generally speaking, it's a big question, but uh, international law uh, in the form of treaties applies where countries have agreed to be bound by the terms of those specific treaties. For example, I, I've shown you examples of several treaties such as the ICCPR. So there are many uh, uh, countries known in international law as states that have signed and ratified that treaty and therefore agreed to be bound by its terms. Uh, where a country has agreed to be bound by a treaty, that treaty trumps the provisions of domestic law, such that the provisions of domestic law must be brought into uh, conformity with the provisions of the treaty. That's why, for example, uh, the United States hesitated for many decades to ratify the Genocide Convention. Excellent question. Thank you for it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm not 
surprised you're bewildered. There's uh, widespread bewilderment on the part of, uh, of international lawyers as well, or at least some, some debate and confusion as to where to draw the line, for example, between hate speech and incitement, between incitement to uh, hostility and incitement to discrimination, between incitement to discrimination and incitement to violence and so forth. I mentioned that the, uh, that the NGO Article 19 has proposed a seven-part framework for identifying the Article 20 threshold, the Article 22 threshold that you see in paragraph 2. Um, and and I, I uh, made reference to one of those uh, seven elements, which would be the likelihood that the incitement is successful. So Article 19 proposes, and I wholeheartedly agree, that uh, speech should be prohibited under Article 20 where it is, where there is a danger that it will lead to the effect that the speaker desires. If some um, um, uh, totally obscure person says uh, in, a, in a forum and in a context in which no one will pay attention some vile, hateful statement, it would be senseless in my view, and also in the view of the, of the Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, and, and I think it's safe to say Article 19, to prosecute that person. What we are all uh, suggesting is to focus instead on the speech acts that are authentically dangerous. Because of the context in which they are made or disseminated, they are more likely to have impact. And in fact, with respect to incitement to genocide uh, and other forms of collective violence, I have proposed an analytical, an analytical framework similar to that of Article 19 with specific uh, application to situations where there's a risk of collective violence. Under, under my framework, there are five criteria with which one can make um, an evaluation of the dangerousness of a particular speech act in context. The first is the speaker. Did the speaker have authority and influence over the audience? The second is the audience. Was the audience particularly susceptible to incitement? You can imagine that there are many reasons why certain audiences, uh, fear, economic uh, deprivation, cultural and historical reasons, etc., are more susceptible. The third uh, criterion is the speech act itself. Was it understood by the audience most likely to react as a call to violence? The fourth is the historical and social circumstances, and the fifth is the means of dissemination, which itself may give greater force to a particular speech act. Does that help? Wonderful. Yes. In many cases, you, you said prohibited by law. In many cases, you quote the various agencies, various three or four international agencies, and the one of Panama for all of the Americas. Is there, what are the provisions for punishment? Uh, so these international treaties, any of those hmm? the international treaties direct states, so-called so state parties, states that have signed or ratified a treaty to prohibit this kind of speech. So if I am a country and I sign and ratify this treaty, now I have an obligation in my national law to prohibit this kind of speech. I could do that by means of criminal law. Um, just to give an example of, of, of one form of criminalization of a speech act 
in Germany it is a crime punishable by imprisonment to engage in Holocaust denial. So I could use criminal law, I could use civil sanctions, I could also use administrative sanctions, for example, um, um, uh, regulating the, the uh, granting of broadcast licenses. The treaty doesn't tell states how to prohibit this form of speech, it simply directs them to, to do it in some way. Thank you for that question, also very helpful. Yes. Yes. Uh, it seems to me, when I've been listening and hearing, that the end of paragraph two there should say something to the effect, shall be prohibited by law whether there is consequence or not. It could, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't. And the fact that it doesn't say that, then an individual like me, who has no standing anywhere, unknown, uh, could be prohibited from saying, uh, Jews are pigs because it raises hostility. And once I've raised any hostility, even though no one cares about me, uh, under this paragraph, I'd be guilty of doing something. It's once. conceivable, depending on the interpretation of that of that uh, so where, sentence. Jews are pigs. So the, where do you draw the line with consequence? That's that's just the point. I'm suggesting that a lot that, that the risk of consequences should be employed to draw a line. So then, uh, for example, if I produced a terrible YouTube video about any subject, and much to my great surprise, there was a consequence, then I'd be guilty. But if nothing happened, my act is perfectly uh, no, justified in being ignored or or within the law? First of all, uh, uh, you can't, um, can't be guilty of a crime um, if you had absolutely no uh, mental element, no interest in carrying it out. In our system of government, correct? Yes. But, but there are some, I think, I'm not a lawyer, uh, there are some people who would say the fact that you've done something even without intent uh, I'm not one of them. I know. So, so, how, does, also, so how does that, how does the, how have any of these addressed that issue of incitement? So, yes. So, again, a very helpful question. In the case of incitement to genocide, for example, there is an explicit intent requirement. You must have the so called specific intent. But that's an extreme, that's an extreme example of what well, goes yes, on in our daily lives, like genocide. Yes, but, but as I said, uh, uh, it seems to me that the five forms of incitement must be interpreted coherently with one another. It doesn't make any sense to have a, an intent requirement for one form of incitement and not for the others. It, it, I don't know whether you're asking my opinion, but, but it seems to me there must be an intent requirement. No, I'm not asking for an opinion. I'm just trying to figure out what could be written anywhere and be of any meaning to a small audience or a large audience in terms of it how to act, or how to, how to, uh, how to control, or so, regulate, or prosecute, or whatever term you want to use, what, what happens so in the if public. So we, if we were to agree that the consequentialist basis is the right one to apply in international human rights law, then we would want to restrict the speech that, that, that really poses a danger, a risk, of successfully 
uh, inciting hostility, discrimination, genocide, violence, terrorism. So that means, just a second, so that means uh, that only the speech that, that, that poses a real risk based on, for example, the factors that I described, would be legitimately prohibited under Article 20. And the speaker would have to intend to bring about that result. It's perhaps no coincidence that that is very similar to the Brandenburg test that I mentioned.
Um, I believe that like in American law, if one is to say that they will commit a crime in the near future, the police have the right to apprehend that individual. Is that the same case in international law? If um, an international figure is to claim and say that he will commit a crime in the near future, for instance, commit genocide, does the international law have a right to prosecute him in the International Court of Justice or something of the sort? You mean if, a, if an official threatens to commit a crime? Yeah. Is that, is that what you're if he, if he either threatens to do it or if he says that he will. He says, in a year's time, I, I will commit a crime, or in the near future, I will commit a crime. It's a good question that I've never considered. Um, first, just a, just a small detail, the International Court of Justice is, is a court uh, in which only states can bring cases against one another. But no. um, uh, I guess the question is whether the International Criminal Court could bring such a case. Yeah. Uh, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over um, a specific limited set of crimes, as you might imagine, since there's only one court and a very big world with lots of terrible things happening, unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, uh, it's hard to say whether such a threat would fall within the substantive ambit of the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. It would depend a bit on its nature. Um, as a practical matter, since the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has, unfortunately, an enormous number of potential cases from which to choose, uh, it's anybody's guess whether the prosecution, whether the prosecutor would choose such a case. For example, there has not yet been a prosecution for incitement to genocide where genocide hasn't yet happened. Okay. However, it is entirely. Uh, possible from the legal doctrinal point of view, because incitement to genocide, I, I have to differ with the, with the although uh, 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 Charles Small has cited professors from my beloved alma mater, I have to disagree with them. Um, uh, it, is, it is the case that incitement to genocide is a completed crime, whether or not genocide has happened. Oh, okay. Um, so in theory, it would be entirely possible to prosecute somebody for incitement to genocide without the genocide having happened. And in fact, that should be the goal. After all, the Genocide Convention is called the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, not just punishment. Because it would seem like that would be more important to prevent genocide than to I prosecute that. I cannot agree with you if, if, if it were possible to prevent uh, genocide by that means or any other, that certainly should be the goal. Yes. With respect, I'm frustrated. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, I study discourse, ideology, and semitism. That makes two of us. Okay. So the, the context is very important. So Absolutely. The, so the Middle East is being overtaken by a revolution. And I would argue people don't see it, they don't want to see it. People have been predicting this for, for a long time, and it's coming to fruition. The ideology is very clear when it comes to anti-Semitism, the treatment of citizen, notions of citizenship, women, minorities, and gay people, etc. Very clear, very, very clear. That's one context. The other context is the United States of America. The United States of America has become the center for incitement, has become the center for the propagating, propagating of hatred. People who want to have an internet domain from, from Europe, from Canada, from, from even the 
those states that come here because they can spread their, their bile all over the world free, free. Yeah, just to clarify. So, so, how does, how, does, so how does power politics, how does the reality of real politics fit into all When you say the United States has become a center for incitement, um, that's a very big claim. Um, but when you refer to the fact that uh, 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 haters and inciters of hatred and violence and racism and anti-Semitism and all of those frightening and, and uh, uh, destructive ideas um, um, can promote those ideas vigorously uh, online even where their own country's laws prohibit them from doing so. They can, they can continue uh, uh, their efforts by domiciling their websites in the United States. That's absolutely the case. Um, German and Austrian neo-Nazi websites are, for the most part, uh, uh, located in the United States, as probably our mutual friend and colleague Mark Weisman is, uh, has extensively documented. There's no question that that's true. What? So, so Douglas, so this beautiful concepts, frameworks, very important. But how do you make it into reality? How does it have an effect on the incitement to you know, the extermination of Jews, which is just a daily, it's a daily constant effort. And it's being, the points are here, the websites are the same. So in the United States, Especially where, as in the case of the ICCPR, the United States has not signed without a binding international treaty, and therefore the provisions of the treaty don't trump U.S. law. Um, it is indeed our um, radical First Amendment jurisprudence that governs. Um, one way of understanding that is to say that in the United States, um, for the last less than 100 years, by the way, because our radical speech-protective constitutional jurisprudence um, only began uh, in the wake of World War I. Um, in the United States, we have found that, uh, that it works for us, that we can afford it, if you like, um, without episodes of collective violence, for example. Um, however, New media and social media are changing the way in which uh, national law and international law functions in the sense that, that, as you know now, the borders are coming down. And so uh, the United States First Amendment jurisprudence, as you have eloquently pointed out, affects the capacity of people in other countries to exercise their what we could call their right to freedom of expression and their desire to use that right in frightening ways. Yes, but it's not sure that it's a reward, as you said, because um, many theorists, according to a lot of research, um, on the bottom of this kind of paper, by websites, many theorists, can tell this actually, because of this body of knowledge, which is based here in the United States. So not exclusively by the way, but no no, okay, but but 
launch pad. Because after all, there are also plenty of foreign governments, so other is, governments that no, don't seem to have to say, Yes, there is an outcome. I mean, there is violence, which is the product of this kind of, of websites, mm -hmm. which are based mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. so, so there is a problem. I mean, it's not that we, yes, because of the freedom of speech, we okay. are exempted. But it's not. But the exemption is not total, right? After all, the United States killed Al-Awlaki exclusively because based on his speech. So, as I said, the First Amendment does not apply abroad, nor do other provisions in this law. Secondly, pardon? Even citizens. That's right. Secondly. Secondly. Uh, the United States has a large body of laws that permit um, uh, prosecution for all manner of terrorist acts and even for um, uh, support of terrorism. Um, in fact, those laws are arguably exceedingly broad to the extent that they can easily be misused to uh, curb freedom of expression. For example, the material support provisions in the Immigration and Nationality Act expanded by the USA Patriot Act and other legislation since September 11th are now extremely broad and do give the US government enormous power to regulate speech. You talk about the uh, community that uh, is dealing with the interpretation of which committee you can say a sentence about this committee? The Human Rights Committee? Yeah, you spoke about the committee of that Yes, there is there is a uh, body called the UN Human Rights Committee, yeah. which is what is known in UN parlance as a treaty body. In other words, it's a it's only for the UN supervision or under the UN Human Rights Council. It's part of the it's part of a separate part of the UN whose job is to interpret. Nothing to do with the UN Commission. Uh, uh, the UN Rights Council. Different. Yes. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I appreciate that question very much also because it allows me to make an important point, which is that although there is lots and lots of circumstantial evidence that uh, inflammatory speech is, uh, as I said, a precursor, if not also a prerequisite for certain kinds of collective violence, um, it's very, very difficult to get proof of causation. In fact, um, there's very little such proof next to it. Why? Because, after all, um, human beings uh, are autonomous creatures, um, influenced by myriad factors when making decisions. We wouldn't ever, in fact, even from the moral point of view, want to say that someone committed a crime exclusively because of what he heard in a in an inciting speech by someone else. 
control. Uh, even if you are very susceptible to incitement, you still have the capacity to resist it and not and not act accordingly. However, um, um, there is some uh, some interesting evidence, including, to my knowledge, the first quantitative evidence of a link between uh, inflammatory speech and mass violence. Reported in an ingenious paper by David Yanagizawa Drott, who teaches here at the Kennedy School. Yanagizawa, Y A N A G I Z A W A hyphen Drott, D R O T T. Um, you asked for an example uh, of, of inflammatory speech that seems to have catalyzed violence. Um, there is quite a robust consensus that. Inflammatory speech before the Rwandan genocide, particularly what was broadcast over a famous radio station called Radio Televisión Libre de Bitcoin, or RTLM, um, contributed uh, to, uh, to the psychosocial process that I, that I described to you, um, that it helped to develop uh, fear particular and, uh, and a rage and tolerance for unspeakable atrocities um, on the part of the critical mass of the of the population of Rwanda. Uh, David Yanagizawa-Drat's paper, uh, his research, attempted to find a correlation between uh, villages that received the signal of this radio station, which, by the way, was established not terribly long before the genocide by a group of shareholders whose purpose seemed to be explicitly to prepare the way for that genocide. Um, so Yanagizawa uh, Drat was looking for a correlation between reception of that signal and levels of violence. Uh, he took advantage of the extraordinary topography of Rwanda. It's, uh, as a matter of fact, the name of the radio station is uh, Radio TV Land of a Thousand Hills in French. That's the nickname for Rwanda because indeed it's an extremely hilly country. And therefore, Yanagizawa Drat was able to find a large set of matched pairs of villages in which um, the pair of villages was very similar demographically and in other, in other statistical ways, except that one was at the top of the hill and therefore got the signal, and the other one was at the bottom of the hill and didn't get the signal. So we compared them and found a a statistically significant effect in those higher levels of violence in the villages that, that received the signal. But the Rwandan cases, uh, of course, together with the Nazi one, uh, uh, one of the most famous. I think the uh, overheads of that work on the International Security Program website, I think they are. Say that again? The overheads showing those maps and work that was done. I think uh, last year you did a presentation on that. Oh, I just wanted to ask you before we come to closure, as a clarification to Charles's first request for clarification, um, and also with in an idea of implementability with your five criteria that you mentioned in the Q&A. If we look at that one act of the missile being towed through Tehran, mm -hmm. uh, who was the audience, do you think? And also, if you could, I'm asking you to think on your feet. How, how would you apply your five criteria to that and make a judgment on whether it's prosecuted? Well, that's just the thing. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I, 
I'm not convinced that that was an act of incitement. Because after all, if, and then the, you can't really perform the analysis if you're not talking about incitement. So, uh, it seems to me no coincidence that the, that the message uh, was displayed on the side of a missile. And as I said before, the act that, uh, uh, the act that we seem to be fearing is not, um, for example, as in the case of the Rwandan genocide, uh, an attack by uh, the Iranian civilian population with machetes or some other weapons on the civilian Israeli population. Rather, a military attack using missiles. Isn't that right? So the audience is in Well, I really don't know. I wonder that. It, it has been suggested, after all, Ahmadinejad also makes these remarks at the UN Security Council, where presumably the audience isn't the civilian population of Iran. Um, it's been suggested to me by people who, who, unlike me, know something about Iran. So I, I, I really must first issue that caveat that, that I'm not in a very good position to analyze uh, um, the remark. The, the, the purpose of remarks by anyone in Iran. Um, but I've been told that, uh, that Ahmadinejad is part of a, uh, a highly unpopular government, uh, that he himself is in, a, is in an uncertain position, and that, like many uh, leaders in many countries throughout history, he's trying to stir up uh, sentiment against an external enemy to distract the attention of the civilian population from his own and his government's failings. But I only pass that on um, uh, as, as, as perhaps one idea to consider. I can't endorse it or, or, uh, or judge it. You know, that's, that's really outside my, my bailiwick. I would have asked. I think that the that's another reason why I wonder about prosecuting this individual. Right. Here's my question. The radio in Rwanda, who is guilty? And before you answer, if we do what Ventura was saying, that there's a correlation between internet access, sort of digesting this horrible stuff on a daily basis, and deciding people to act for helping them in the recruitment process for violent acts or joining terrorist organizations, if this Rwanda radio station is the case, if the domains are in the United States, and, and we can now do some sort of study, maybe we should, showing the correlation, if there is a correlation, between internet access of this hatred and leading to actions of violence, then who would be responsible? If I let's say we did a study that comes through six months, and I, you know, even more powerful than the radio station, I can prove to you that action. 
It's not that all speech is protected in the United States. As I've said, we have a standard, which is the Brandenburg standard. So President Morsi just did on the videotape a prayer, a common prayer, calling for the annihilation of the Jewish people. He's receiving billions of dollars a day from the United States. What, what do we think Morsi? The Brotherhood has a, a prayer calling for the annihilation of the Jewish The United States is a representative democracy in which, if you'd like to affect the government's policy regarding foreign states, there are uh, mechanisms for expressing your point of view. It's, it, it, so we can't prosecute our own government in our domestic courts. Is the Brotherhood responsible for it? If it's true that they're, they pray for, plan for they, they may be uh, responsible under the standards of international human as long as we discuss it. Cases of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia often brought be, um, before these courts, or are most of the cases of these African um, genocides and, and, and wars? No, no. If you if you include, uh, for example, Holocaust denial as a form of, of anti-Semitism, as, as many have done, uh, then there have been numerous cases brought both before the European Court uh, uh, and the Human Rights Committee of anti-Semitism and also arguably of Islamophobia. In fact, that's one of the reasons I gave for my particular interest in both of these forms of speech that together they um, they form, uh, the, in fact, the majority of the cases that have been brought before, the majority of the cases uh, on inflammatory speech brought before international human rights bodies. I'm also, also interested, who brings these cases before the, the courts? Are they individuals? Individuals, typically complaining of violations of their rights. So for example, a Holocaust denier who's been prosecuted by his own government can, uh, if, if he alleges that that was a violation of his human rights under an international convention, the European Convention or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, he may uh, complain to one of those bodies. And in fact, that has happened repeatedly, giving rise to the cases to which I'm referring. Okay. So on behalf of this guy, thank you very much for a very good presentation. Thanks for coming up. Have a good holiday, everybody. We're back at the third week of January. So, ah, that's right. I was the, the, the last of the week. Have a nice holiday.